adolescence, from Latin adolescere, meaning to grow up, is a transitional stage of physical and psychological human development that generally occurs during the period from puberty to... <sighs> Whatever. The early teens are years of upheaval and turmoil. Parents of almost every child find the age of puberty or early adolescence full of problems. <sighs> Whatever. Even back in the 1950s, the trials and tribulations of adolescence were making adults focus on doom and gloom. So let's go there. Adolescence is a time when humans are stronger and healthier than any other period of life. But rates of mortality and morbidity spike. Why? Compared to adults and children, adolescents suffer from higher rates of stress, mental illness, substance abuse, and engage in something known in the literature as risky behavior. We're talking reckless driving, binge drinking, unprotected sex, and experimenting with drugs. Not so far. This is the blighted landscape of modern teens as depicted by researchers, experts, and the media. While these facts are correct, do they paint an accurate picture? Kara Lloyd with Like a Sponge, a new podcast about what science says about how kids learn. And today we're talking about the mysterious, miraculous teenage brain and how we parents may have been taught to think about it all wrong. Here's a question for you. Think back however far you need to go, back to when you were just entering adolescence. What do you remember about being 12? I have no idea what gave me the confidence to start performing magic shows for money when I was 12. That's Ira Glass from This American Life from a recent show about magic, talking about how when he was in seventh grade, he made the rounds as a magician at children's birthday parties. I'd been given one of those magic kits like you give a little kid that they sell at toy stores. I did my act from seventh grade through my sophomore year of high school. And so many times it got kind of carved into me. I could have probably performed it word for word and move for move up through my 30s. I still regularly have dreams that I'm supposed to do the act. Then Ira calls up a friend of his mother who had hired him as a magician for her children's birthday parties to see what she recalls about his early entertainment career. And this is when something magical happens. She voices what probably every audience member is already thinking, but Ira himself doesn't seem to see. Those 12-year-old magic shows were the birthplace of who he later became. You think you're doing something different now? <laughs> yes, I am doing something different now. No, you're not. Oh, is no, that... you're not. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I don't buy that. Okay, you think what you want, I'll think what I want. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying when you hear me on the radio, it reminds you of my magic act? It reminds me of who you have always been, as far as I'm concerned. Who you have always been. Often we think about our early childhood as the acorn of our oak tree selves. But brain research suggests it's often this crucial period of adolescence when the brain transforms so radically that shapes our adult brains, even if that 12-year-old persona wore a cape. If you're like most people, you probably have vivid memories of being 12 or 13, what you cared about, what made you angry, what you loved to spend your time doing. And for a lot of us, those experiences in adolescence had a lot to do with the people we became. Every single night, I went to sleep staring at a five-by-five five grid of squares. And what does a young lad do, uh, seeing an image like that in his mind each and every night? Well, he starts making puzzles for himself. You know, I counted the number of squares. That's mathematician James Tanton. He traces his aptitude and passion for math back to the ceiling he stared at throughout his adolescent years and the complex math games he devised. Sixth grade, what was that, 12-ish, I think? 
I directed my first full-length play. My father was a drama teacher, and I'd seen, I would spend my Saturdays watching him do his thing. That's San Francisco Shakespeare Festival resident artist Phil Lowry, whose love affair with drama started after he convinced a middle school teacher to allow him to direct a school play. Mostly what I remember is just reading all the time. I read all night and all through class. I used to hide my book partway under the desk. And that's Charity Ferreira, my co-producer, whose voice you rarely hear, but whose writing is all over these podcasts. She's plied her trade as an editor and writer for everything from magazines to books to articles, and it all goes back to reading through class in sixth grade. But here's the thing. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback, right? Easy to trace the careers of successful radio hosts, mathematicians, and theater directors back to their adolescent passions. Seeing the dotted line between our young teens and the adults they will become isn't easy. And in fact, for decades, even adolescent experts didn't make the connection. The science of adolescence has been largely defined by psychologists who are mostly concerned with adolescent risk factors. But according to New Brain Science, there's a completely different way to think about this period of human development. If you go and you look uh, in a bookstore or on an online bookseller's website, you're going to find what what I like to call survival guides. But they're all about how to survive your kid's adolescence, how to survive the teen years, you know, so-and-so's guide to survival during this tumultuous time. That's Lawrence Steinberg, a professor of psychology at Temple University and author of a book called The Age of Opportunity about, you guessed it, the adolescent brain. Adolescence has become the root canal of parenting, where parents go into it thinking, if I can just get through this, I'll be okay. Well, I think that's a pretty low bar to set for what you want out of these years. And and I think that if we can just change parents' beliefs about adolescence, if they start seeing it as a time of opportunity and not just uh, as a period where things are going to go wrong, uh, I, I think that they and their kids will benefit tremendously from that that change in orientation. Okay, so approach the teen years with a positive attitude. This is good advice. But in order to appreciate the teenage brain, it's worth understanding how children's brains initially develop. Now, very early in life, let's say during the prenatal period and during infancy and early childhood, the brain develops synapses just like crazy. I mean, just so dramatically. And it overproduces them. Synapses are the little gaps that allow signals to pass from one neuron to another. So you end up with this very kind of cluttered network of connections between the neurons and the brain, many of which are not needed. And what happens over time is that those synapses that aren't necessary and aren't used start to die out. They disappear. So the brain becomes much more efficient. So the metaphor that I like to use for this is that the brain goes from being this network of of unpaved paths, you know, thousands of them, to a network of superhighways. And so it's just a much faster way to get electrical impulses through the brain, to have a a well-pruned brain. This synaptic pruning is one of the hallmarks of adolescent brains. These young brains are essentially becoming streamlined, based on repeated thinking, feeling, and doing. But during this process of the brain transforming itself, there's this period of vulnerability and opportunity. 
Ron Dahl is a professor in the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley and directs the Center on the Developing Adolescent. He wants to change the way we treat adolescents based on what we know about what's going on inside their brains. You realize it's this sort of tipping point, this precarious place. This is a risky time, but it's also a, a time of enormous opportunity for kids to really you know, connect these strong feelings and passions and identity formation in positive ways. He makes a comparison with the critical years of zero to three. Most every parent knows these years are hugely important for brain development. But neuroscience shows there's another critical period. Right around the time puberty hits, the brain has its biggest growth spurt since infancy. This period, Dahl says, should get just as much attention as the early years. It feels wonderful to be a parent of a young child. I mean, even, even though it's a lot of work, it's like this sense of wonder. Why wouldn't we feel the same way about kids? Like, they're becoming individuals with passions and interests. Um, and similarly, we recognize we need to support young parents, parents of young children. Why aren't we providing more support and guidance to parents of kids who are transitioning into adolescence? Brain plasticity is a big buzzword these days. The idea that the brain changes in response to experience. We used to think plasticity was a feature of young brains. But research has shown that our brains can change and grow at all ages, from womb to tomb. What's different about the adolescent brain? For one thing, we know the prefrontal cortex doesn't mature until age 25, which is why teens struggle with decision-making, impulse control, and planning ahead. Dahl suggests that the very thing that's a liability for teen brains may also be their superpower, raw emotional intensity. During puberty, emotional parts of adolescent brains mature before more rational parts. That leaves a period where emotions guide the transformation of the brain. This ability to have strong feelings and passions and and valuing certain kinds of long-term goals or feeling your identity is linked to certain kinds of things and then connecting that system to these other systems is probably what's uniquely plastic. Steinberg and Dahl agree. This is a critical time for kids to get hooked on things, both positive and negative. As Dahl observed, there's a reason Shakespeare made Juliet 13. It's because everything feels more intense in early adolescence. It's like the intensity dial is turned up to 11. Romeo and Juliet exchange less than 100 words and two kisses, and they're, like, willing to die for each other. I mean, this intense obsession that then gets sculpted. That capacity for high-intensity motivational alignment to a particular thing mm-hmm. seems to be um, enhanced at this window after puberty occurs. High-intensity motivational alignment to a particular thing. In other words, adolescence is a peak time for discovering what you love to do, whether it's reading or dancing or drawing superheroes or shooting free throws. Passion itself isn't the point, not really. The point is that whatever you do a lot of in adolescence builds the synaptic superhighways and profoundly influences who you become as an adult. When we're adults, the patterns of connection, it's like your own fingerprint. Each person has a different functional connectome of the ways Mm. these different circuits of the brain are wired up. It turns out that the relative discreteness of how unique that is in late childhood is really low. 
Hmm. By the end of adolescence, it's really high. So what he's saying is that if you look at children's connectomes, they have a lot in common. But during adolescence, brains change in a way that makes them increasingly different from one another, forming a unique fingerprint. Not by an individual experience, not because you read a poem and suddenly you're inspired, but because that poem inspired you to read another hundred poems and then talk about poems with someone else or do a certain sport. It's not some moment where suddenly you're different. It's when you get this strong feeling that you love something or someone, if that creates an intense feeling, then you're going to shape your patterns of behavior around those feelings. And if you do that for six months or a year or two years or three years, then that's what's going to shape your connectome. It's not the event that suddenly changes your brain. It's the event creates this strong attractor. And then you have patterns of behavior while the brain is wiring up that then shapes these. There's a dark side to this. All those statistics I mentioned about teens being drawn to self-destructive activities, Dahl says that often begins with kids not getting excited about anything at all. Some of the biggest risks are kids that don't find any experience in that space, nothing that stretches them, nothing that makes them feel enlarged as, as an individual in some way that's admired or valued through effort and persistence. And I think there's a lot of kids that just don't find anything at that point. Having nothing to attach your passions to, finding nothing that kindles these feelings, you can just, I mean, it's, it's also not a paradox that at the, this age of igniting passions and high intensity sensation seeking, kids are bored much more of the time. That's not a paradox. If you're more sensation seeking and you are more likely to like high intensity experiences, and if you're spending a lot of your time sitting at a desk in school, learning things that don't feel very engaging, you're gonna feel much more bored. So how can parents help kids at this tender age get hooked on something positive rather than falling prey to apathy or self-destructive behavior? Research suggests teens care deeply about issues that affect the real world. Kids who participate in community service are more likely to do better in school, and they're less likely to engage in risky behavior. We visited a program that gets adolescents interested in coding by giving them the tools to solve a problem they care about. My name is Mahika. I'm 11. I thought that it was really cool how a bunch of girls our age could create an app that changes the world. So I recruited a team and we got started on building our app. So our app is called Sangus. We are looking to help end blood shortages all over the U.S. Um, our app is called Streetwise, and basically the aim of our app is to um, get people off their phones and to focus on the road when they're driving. Um, we are the FFA Union, and that stands for Food for All, which is the name of our app. Um, it's about connecting grocery stores and food banks together so less food is wasted at supermarkets. Technovation is an international competition whose mission is to empower middle and high school girls to use technology and entrepreneurship. The girls work in teams for 12 weeks, designing apps that solve real-world problems. We went to a regional pitch event and talked with some of the girls as they were getting ready to present their apps to a panel of judges. My name is Nishita Baller and I'm in 8th grade. So basically, lack of health care in rural, poverty-stricken areas is a serious problem that requires immediate attention. My app is looking to solve that problem. So healthcare volunteers can set up e-appointments for patients and connect them to remote volunteering doctors 
and, you know, have an appointment over video conference. The program is the brainchild of Tara Shuklovsky, a former aerospace engineer and elementary school principal in India. She credits Technovation with sparking girls' interest in STEM. We've done um, two five-year longitudinal studies, and that is what we are really, really proud of because that shows real change in behavior. And we found that almost um, 30% of the girls, and this is after five years, um, they take more computer science classes. This, the impact is pretty lasting on their behavior. And they had, it has all these components of social learning and approval from the community, from your parents, from your mentors. And so the effects are very long-lasting. We definitely want to improve the app um, outside of our time in Technovation. And maybe next year we'll learn from our mistakes this year and we'll be better brainstormers, better coders. So next year we could move on and make it even better the app than this year. Research shows kids this age are wired to be extra sensitive to peer approval. So it makes sense that group activities get kids feeding off one another. So what kind of activities should you encourage? Soccer, debate, student government? That's a tricky question. The research suggests that what's most important is the act of committing to something and sticking with it over time. One study found teens who pursued an organized extracurricular activity for two years or more increased their odds of getting into college and getting a job soon after college. On the other hand, some group activities are especially good for teens developing brains. Take instrumental music programs, a.k.a. band. It's one of those activities that are freely available at most middle and high schools. And there's remarkable science behind their value, both for math and language acquisition and improving academic performance. Why would garden variety band practice function like a miracle grow for the teen brain? We ask one music teacher who's helped a generation of adolescent kids tune into the band experience. One, two. It's such a democratic experience, and the kids learn to listen beyond the sound that they're making. And I think that that's a big challenge to get them to that place of, like, really learning from each other. That's Zach Pitt-Smith, the music program director at Edna Brewer Middle School in Oakland. Edna Brewer is a uh, public middle school. It's very diverse, and we have kids from all walks of life. I think it's quite a little microcosm of the city and of our, of our world, really. For Pitt-Smith, it's this combination of a diverse community engaged in highly social learning, which casts a magic spell over some of his middle schoolers. I think a lot of sparks are ignited here for them, for a lot of kids. Something happens with these kids. They get so excited. They find themselves, you know, both socially in a community that's really beautiful, and they're creating a collective work of art together, or also they see something in themselves that they're not capable of. When you hear these kids play together, it seems like Pitt Smith has discovered the secret sauce for unlocking adolescent genius. But it's not quite so simple. Every year, as his students work toward their spring concert, he wonders how they'll be able to pull it off. They're really distractible. It's really hard for them to concentrate. And then, you know, like two weeks before the concert, when I have it in my mind that they should be at this stage and they're not, I get frustrated and I think, oh, well, okay, I have to sort of dial back my expectations. They're not near ready. They've been goofing off. Their teacher is starting to stress out. And then two days before the concert, they're there. And so I always scratch my head. I mean, I'm, you know, a good 20 years into this kind of career and I'm still scratching my head thinking, 
I, I should know that they're going to get to where I want them to get to, but they always fool me. <laughs> they always seem to fool me. They always seem to fool me. This coming from a man who has worked with hundreds of middle schoolers over two decades. That's a beautiful thing about early adolescents. They're capable of so much more than we sometimes think. The question is, how to help them get there? Yeah, you can even take your sweet time. Lisa Medoff, an adolescent psychologist and learning specialist at Stanford School of Medicine, works with teens to help them through academic and emotional issues. She says exposing kids to new activities is great, but it's not enough. It needs to feel real. I ask her, if she were designing a middle school, what would it look like? I think I would give kids more options um, where they can learn things in a, in a context that feels realistic mm-hmm. to them. Right. You know, I'm sure you've heard this as a parent. When am I ever going to use this? Right. And I think um, for adolescents, especially our earlier adolescents, they are more present focused. And to tell a seventh grader, well, you're going to need this when you're an adult or when you're in college, that feels so foreign and so far off to them that it just doesn't have any meaning. Um, And so if we could, we can teach subjects and we can teach the skills that they need in a way that feels more motivating motivating and more relevant to them. I would love to get, I would get kids out of schools and into communities. They do a, um, a lecture on history mm. of adolescence and mm-hmm. talk about, you know, adolescents really use, now we're scared of them. Y- used to be, oh my gosh, when your kid hit puberty, you're like, yay, you're big enough to go work on the farm or you're independent enough to go out and have an internship. That reminds me and, of Hamilton, yes, which is everyone's obsessed with. Yes. But you look at uh, him mm-hmm. as a 14-year-old he was in charge of a training post, right, right? Right, And so that concept of all these kids that are capable of doing mm-hmm. so much but needing to wait another 10 years right. before they make any single right. relevant decision about acting in the world. Yes, and so I would have them out doing more community service. I would have them out doing internships and engaging and just seeing a world that is expanded beyond their world. My name is Alexander Hamilton And there's a million things I haven't done But just you wait, just you wait We've talked about three ideas you can use to tap into your child's supercharged learning ability. One, the power of their passion. Two, the power of peer group intensity. And three, the power of purpose. That is, giving adolescents a way to contribute to something outside themselves. But what about when those super brains melt down? Medoff reminded me that teenagers have more in common with toddlers than you might guess. When your toddler does something wrong, Mm -hmm. you don't stand there and lecture at them for a half hour, Mm -hmm. right? You deliver immediate logical consequences. Mm -hmm. And for a teenager, you can go a little bit further. and, And I think it's important to let teenagers know how it's affecting you, how it's making you feel, but not going on and on about making it about you. Um, Yeah, I have a teen, and as soon as I say the second sentence 
of my expected paragraph. She says, all right, you've been lecturing me for like half an hour. Right, and right. I've said exactly one, one sentence. sentence. And so I, I always say you have to speak in sound bites, like, like you were saying, you know, mm. you, the second sentence feels like a lecture to them. I also like kids to have a very short list of strategies, like three. Three is a, a good number in fairy tales and everything else. When you get angry, what are three things that you can do. So do you need to go for a walk? Do you need to make a playlist that's your I'm angry playlist? Mm -hmm. Um, Do you you need to get yourself some, some tea? You know, whatever it is. Giving your teens strategies for dealing with the turbulence of living with a brain under construction is essential. But we also need to think about how we as parents contribute to the turbulence. Experts say there's a teen stress epidemic and that parents are part of the problem. Adults are put in a situation where they feel like they have to work a lot. They have to be online all the time. Um, And I think we all are, again, more isolated. People don't tend as much to live around families or have um, Mm -hmm. extended groups of, of friends or communities. I think adolescents are not necessarily seeing the modeling or getting mm. the support because parents and all the other adults in their lives tend to have a lot of stressors on, on them. That's a problem because that plasticity we've been talking about makes the teen brain especially vulnerable to stress. Again, Lauren Steinberg, author of The Age of Opportunity. There are a number of studies indicating that the same amount of stress on you has a worse effect on your brain during adolescence than it does during childhood or during adulthood. In fact, teens may be even more stressed than their parents. In a 2013 survey, U.S. teens reported higher stress levels than adults. Many also reported that stress was causing them to feel overwhelmed, depressed, or sad. A lot of that, I think, is from this notion that's floating around out there um, that it's important for kids not only to be good at a lot of things, but to be perfect at everything. And so... These parents who are putting enormous pressure on their kids, not only to achieve well in school, but to be stars on their athletic teams and champions in debate and uh, star actresses and actors on the stage. I see kids suffering uh, you know, under, under all these demands, and I, I really think in a lot of kids it, it, it's hazardous to do that. I've been struggling with this paradox. As a parent, you want to create the conditions for your kids to have their interests sparked, their passions kindled, their brains shaped by deep learning. On the other hand, you don't want them to buy into a teenage rat race that leads to anxiety, unhappiness, and stress. And then something happened to me last week that made what I've learned about the teen brain sort of click into place. I was in this Cuban dance class I take, which is full of older women, And there's this woman who's maybe in her late 60s who never misses a class. She once told me when she was a teen, she wanted to be a dancer, but she never got to pursue it. And as she was mamboing with abandon next to me, I just started crying because that teen girl was still so alive. And I was thinking, if you have a kid just hitting adolescence, this is what you need to remember. Though you may be focusing on setting the stage for their future, this is not a dress rehearsal for them. This is opening night. This is it.
You've been listening to Like a Sponge. If you like what you heard, take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes. This is a new venture, and we really care about your feedback. Special thanks to Ira Glass and This American Life for allowing us to use a clip of the episode, The Magic Show. Thanks also to Lawrence Steinberg, Ron Dahl, Tara Chuklovsky, Zach Pitt-Smith, and Lisa Medoff. And thank you to the girls who told us about their Technovation projects and the Edna Brewer Middle School Jazz Band. This episode of Like a Sponge was produced by Carol Lloyd and Charity Ferreira of Great Schools, thanks to the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York and our managing editor, Jessica Kelman. Sound editing and design by Christopher Ferreira. To learn more about the resources mentioned in this episode, visit us at greatschools.org forward slash like a sponge. <laughs>